Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. We're glad you're here. That was the guitar-wielding freedom fighter Tom Morello getting us started, as he always does. Tom shows up, and I hope each of you, each of us, is showing up in these remarkable and extraordinary times. None of us can afford to miss this brutal, tragic, joyous, hopeful, unprecedented, and magical moment. We open each seminar, each edition of the podcast, with a poem. Our common practice, our ritual announcement to seminar is in session. Today's poem comes from the pen of Lynn Unger, a poet and Unitarian minister who lives with her wife and daughter in the Bay Area. And the poem is called Breathe, Said the Wind. Breathe, said the wind. How can I breathe at a time like this when the air is full of smoke, of burning tires, burning lives. Just breathe, the wind insisted. Easy for you to say if the weight of injustice is not wrapped around your throat, cutting off all air. I need you to breathe. I need you to breathe. Don't tell me to be calm when there are so many reasons to be angry, so much cause for despair. I didn't say to be calm, said the wind. I said to breathe. We're going to need a lot of air to make this hurricane together. That's a poem by Lynn Unger. Let's continue with our second regular feature of free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a few moments and write without stopping. No need for edits or revisions in response to this prompt. How are you and your lovelies finding spaces to breathe? And in what ways are you on guard for hurricanes? Okay, start writing. I'll be right here when you get back. If you want to share your response to the writing prompt, email the voice memo to underthetree at gmail.com. We might play it in a future episode, so make sure you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. You can also follow us at Under the Tree Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel for clips and interviews. Okay, back to the show. Hey Malik, how you doing? How you doing today? I'm all right, Bill. How are you? We're good. How, how are the kids doing? Man, everyone's like on 10. I don't know what's going on. Really? Yeah, but you know, comes with the territory. Okay, that's good. Uh, so you and I are going to talk today about reparations. Um, as part of a conversation that we need to have and that the country is having, but it's partly a lead-in to the legal scholar and the brilliant Catherine Frankie, who's going to be joining the show later. She's written a book called Repair about uh, the history of reparations, and I think I think we'll all find that fascinating. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. We'll get into it, but there's a, a wide range of feelings I have about the idea of monetary uh, payment as repair. Um but we can we can definitely get into it. What do you what are your kind of surface feelings about reparations? Well, I'm I'm per, partly I'm interested in what you just said, and and then I'll tell you my surface feelings. But 
But uh, when did you first hear about the concept of reparations? Because you were raised in a fairly political family. I mean, and you're you're a young guy. I'm 75. Uh, but when did you first hear about the idea of reparations? When did you first start thinking about it? That's a good question. I think probably, um, you know, pretty young. Uh, yeah. You know, probably probably around 10 or 11. Right. The idea of... Uh, the, you know the forty acres and a mule. I think it. I think that was my my first introduction. I think we, we my my family was watching a a Spike Lee movie, and uh, uh-huh. I think you know his production company is called Forty Acres and a Mule. Uh, and I, you know, one of us asked the question, well, "What does that mean? What is that about?" I love it. You know that you know black people after slavery were supposed to get some kind of way to make a living that being you know to work the land that being 40, 40 acres and a mule so uh but you know i never really thought about it beyond that i never really thought about it in like a uh a, a modern context or the possibilities uh until maybe college yeah yeah i find it fascinating that you that you get to spike lee's production company because i've always found that absolutely dazzling that he named his production company 40 acres and a mule that was what was promised to the enslaved workers in the south at liberation by general sherman it never became national policy but the radicals in the congress said look in a sense what they said was look you can't say to people oh you're free you've been tied down to a to a cell your whole life you can't hardly walk you can't hardly read you can't but here you're free go ahead and and what what Sherman said and what the radicals said in the Congress was, we have to give folks the means of production. We have to give them the means to produce. And, and that's a pretty radical statement. And so I, I loved it that Spike Lee named that, his production company after that. And I think you're a very lucky person to have grown up with a political family where your dad could actually explain the history of that. That's pretty great. It was you know it was pretty rare that we would get to watch a Spike Lee movie at that young age, so you know the cultural aspect of it too was good. So what I said earlier about uh, you know feeling iffy about the idea of monetary payment as repair, uh, I definitely think monetary payment is uh, due and necessary and should happen uh, in terms of descendants of the slave trade, but. Uh, in terms of repair, I don't think the money uh, accomplishes that. If that is the goal, right, repairing uh, race relations or, or repairing the original sin, quote unquote, I don't, I don't think that's what what would accomplish that. There, there would have to be some more intentional, uh, you know, kind of reversal of a lot of like systematic policy entrenched uh, things that you know kind of continue slavery in different ways. I think you're right. I mean, I think that it's it's more than monetary. But the way I the way I think of it, and the way I've thought of it, really, since I was 20 years old, you you were lucky. You learned about it when you were 10. <laughs> I was 20. But uh, to me, reparations is making amends for a wrong by helping those who've been wronged. That doesn't mean only money, but it means a lot of things. And it's a form of restorative justice. You know, it's a form of uh, so-and-so created harm. In this case, the state uh, created harm, not just in the original sin, but as you point out, in the, 
in the perpetuation of the original sin through Jim Crow, through redlining, through mass incarceration, through voter suppression. So the original sin has not been taken care of at all, and the afterlife of slavery lives with us today. But making amends for the original sin plus the afterlife, it seems to me, is a fair and just and reasonable, you know, demand. So, so you've, you've known about it for a long time. The reality is it goes back in history, really to the beginning. It goes back, you know, to the Egyptians, basically. You know, I mean, it goes back forever. It's not a new idea, although we're coming to it, I think, in a new way, which is very exciting. But, you know, I, I said I first heard about it when I was a young man. James Foreman, who was a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, tacked a, a, a notice on the door of Riverside Church in New York City and demanded reparations. And it, it was a shocking thing to us, and we were dazzled by it. But if you go back even further, Frederick Douglass called for reparations, Angela Davis, Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael. I mean, it goes back every black leader in history, really, who's, who's stood up for human rights and civil rights has said, you owe us something. I mean, for example, I, I've got two things here that would be worth hearing. One is from Frederick Douglass in 1881. He writes, when the Hebrews were emancipated, they were told to take spoil from the Egyptians. When the serfs of Russia were emancipated, they were given three acres of ground on which they could make a living. But not so when the slaves were emancipated in the U.S. They were sent away empty-handed, without money, without friends, without a foot of land on which they could live, old and young, sick and well, were tuned, turned loose to the naked sky. That's Douglas in 1881, right? I was gonna, yeah, I, I was thinking about the, uh, you know, that there's, I always hear about other examples of reparations having been given, uh, you know, the Japanese internment camps in the US and then other examples in other parts of the world that I'm not recalling right now, but, um, you know, that has always been a part of the discussion that, you know, why not this particular a uh, case of, you know, decades of generational injustice. Uh, why not yeah. that? Why not this one? Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's I think it's because we've never done what the brilliant journalist Nicole Hannah Jones calls on us to do, which is to recognize the basic moral commitment that when a wrong, wrong is committed, and in this case, the wrong was committed by the state, and it was supported by the majority of people. It was the state that made these laws, that created these conditions. The state has to respond to that. And until we get a, make an intellectual, moral, political judgment that that's right, we can work out the details about whether, how much it's money, how much it's other things. But I think it's important that you point to the um, reparations given to the Japanese who were interned for, what, three or four years in the 1940s in the United States. They were paid $1.6 billion in 1988, um, that, that's worth something like three and a half billion dollars today, and and President Ronald Reagan signed the bill. So I mean, come on, that that's a form of reparations. You had said in the beginning that it's not just monetary, and that's true. Even with the Japanese reparations, there was an apology from the government. There was an apology for racism. There was an apology for war hysteria. That's necessary too. So if you look back you know, to something you and I were involved in was the reparations for the John Burge tortures in Chicago. It had many aspects. Money was one part. 
education was one part, recognition was one part, apology was one part, um, education for the, the guys who were tortured plus their children and grandchildren at public expense. That's part of reparations. And reparations can be big or small, but what I'm trying to emphasize, I think, is that until we take it as a moral imperative to say that a crime was committed, restorative justice demands reparations of many types, um, then, we're, then we're stuck. But the, the, the actual facts of how, what it would look like, Chicago's reparations agreement around police torture is one example. Oakland, California's uh, decision to um, give marijuana dispensary licenses to the folks who were themselves criminalized by possessing marijuana is an example. I mean, there are many examples, but the first responsibility is make the moral decision that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. You're right. And I think maybe I'm just, I have my organizer hat on because I'm thinking, you know, the, the principles, uh, the mechanics, uh, the precedent is all there. They're, you know, like you just said, the models for which this could be built upon are there. So I'm, I don't doubt that. And I don't, you know, let me be clear. I am all for reparations. But but in fact, you know, what I what I start thinking about is how to win. Let me, let me go back to you, though, around being an organizer. I, I think that's what... That's a great strength that you bring to our conversation. And I think it's important to be practical and to be real. But if you think back again through history, you say, um, we won the end of the Atlantic slave trade, but we didn't win the idea that whites are not superior to blacks and white supremacy is wrong. We won the abolition of slavery, but we did not win a recognition among a majority of people that white supremacy was wrong and black inferiority was a myth. Then we won civil rights, but we didn't win the idea that white supremacy is wrong and black inferiority is a myth. You see what I'm saying? That that is the insidious kind of snaking, transforming through line that, you know, is hard to follow. You talk about how you know, slavery has now grown into what we refer to as mass incarceration in a very clear stepwise way. Uh, white supremacy and whiteness, the idea of whiteness has also, you know, been crafted and created along the way uh, to kind of just, you know, negate in a lot of ways the symbolic uh, wins or the symbolic structural changes that we celebrate. You know, those things were you know, definitely important, but at the end of the day, like you keep saying, that the white supremacy remains. Yeah, it remains. And I think one of the other things I think as an organizer that you would appreciate, and, and you know this stuff, but you go back and you think about the mythological Martin Luther King, you know, and I have a dream speech and little black boys and little black girls will be playing on the same hillside. I mean, you know, It was a brilliant speech. There's no question about it. But what people leave out of that is he also said in that speech, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. He was talking about reparations. And you go fast forward three more years or four more years, and he says basically, for well now 12 years, the struggle was a struggle to end legal segregation. It was for decency. It was to get rid of all the humiliation and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding the system of legal segregation. And I need not remind you that those were glorious days. This is King. It now is a struggle for genuine equality. The gains of the first period of the first struggle uh, were obtained from the power structure at bargain rates. Didn't cost the nation anything to integrate lunch counters. And he goes on. And then he says, 
We got to understand what's happening. Now is often called the white backlash. Backlash. It's just a new name for an old phenomenon. The fact is that there's never been any single solid determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans to genuine equality, including economic equality for black people. That's Martin Luther King. That's the part that they want to erase when they have prayer breakfasts. Those are the strongest words I've ever heard from Dr. King, and I've never heard him say it. Well, it's amazing. It's amazing because it get erased. I mean, you, you learn about, you know, it always kills me. You go to school, you learn about Martin Luther King, you learn about Brown versus Board of Education, and you can learn about it in a segregated classroom, which is literally illegal. But, but the, you know, it's, it's just brushed over. So it's important that we recover the good history, but it's mainly important that we go forward with this fight now that we're at this point where lots and lots of people are paying attention to what is the most important, imaginative, radical demand, and that is a full-scale assault on white supremacy, a destruction of the myth of black inferiority, and a, a world in balance and in harmony, which we can reach, but we have to do it as a mass struggle. Indeed. So I guess this takes us to thinking about more books, more readings, more things we might pursue as we try to understand and get a deeper appreciation for reparations as a moral imperative. I mentioned Randall Robinson's 2000 book, The Debt, What America Owes to Black People. It's an incredible read, and it's really one of the most comprehensive things I had read up to that point. There's also a book called Long Overdue by Charles Henry and Should America Pay Reparations by Raymond Winbush. All of these are fantastic. I also mentioned Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston, which I think is a must-read, a very unique book, very important. But I think in the modern, in the, in the current moment, there are two things, three things, really, that, that are must-reads. One is Ta-Nehisi Coates' 2014 article in The Atlantic called The Case for Reparations, where he really makes an airtight case for why reparations are on the agenda and must be on the agenda if we're going to move forward in any way in this country, if we're going to save ourselves. And then I think <clears throat> Nicole Hannah-Jones has two pieces in the New York Times Magazine, one in 2019, where she launches the 1619 Project, which is essential reading. And then in 2020, a front page, a, a cover story in the magazine section called What is Owed? And she makes, I think, a very important argument about why it's important to understand the principles involved before you worry too much about the details of what's involved. It's, it's really understanding the moral imperative again. And finally, I just finished reading Isabel Wilkerson's 2020 book, Cast, a monumental book, and uh, I think something that adds a layer, a dimension to this conversation that's been missing. So I recommend all of those, and that's our book of books for today. It's time for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours. That's A-A-A-A-H, pronounced ah, like a sigh, or it could be a question mark or an exclamation point. I kind of like the sigh. This is where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, about what's to be done, or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, 
release our radical imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but how things might be otherwise. And today I couldn't be happier to be joined by Catherine Frankie, one of the nation's leading scholars on law, racial justice, African-American history, and sexuality. She is a professor at Columbia University and the chair of the Board of Trustees of the Center for Constitutional Rights, a legendary civil rights law project. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us under the tree. Oh, Bill, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I want to start by just asking you how you're doing and where you're finding joy in this particular fraught political moment that we're living through. I'm doing okay. I think all of us are trying to figure out how to live with the both the dangers of the COVID pandemic, but also the just the intensity of what's going on in this country around racial justice and how to do those two things at the same time. And it's um, it's both a hopeful time, I think, in terms of what we're starting to see shift around racial justice, but it's also a heavy time. Um, uh, and as we look forward to the election, um, I don't want to put too much credence in electoral politics, but it would be nice to get rid of this guy in D.C. Well, I think we have to get rid of him, and I think it won't answer every problem, not even close. But I think what's going on in the street is going to mean that what comes next is going to be quite different because, as you know, and as you and I agree, the what goes on in the street, what goes on among the masses of people actually moves the dial in ways that electoral politics only follow. I think that's important for people to remember. That's absolutely right. You know, power never concedes anything without a very strong demand, as we know. And um, these demands have to keep being made loudly with lots of people. And um, it's just been encouraging to see that happening. It really has. I uh, picked up your latest book um, at the bookstore and you had been to the bookstore and signed it. So I have a signed copy of a book, Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolitionists. Uh, of abolition, I'm sorry. It's repair, redeeming the promise of abolition. And I've read a lot about reparations. In fact, I first remember the demand in my life when I first heard the demand for reparations was when I was 18 years old. And it's a demand that makes so much sense to me. But this book is absolutely unique because you take us through the Civil War and after the Civil War, and you, I think you do a couple of very unique things. But maybe Talk a bit about the books, and then I'll, I'll move us towards the what I think is really a real contribution. Oh, thank you. Well, the book, um, I kind of saw uh, as I was writing it that the book would function as a kind of amicus brief or friendly historical intervention that would assist the uh, movement for Black Lives and other activists who've been demanding reparations and a robust form of racial justice in this country for a very long time. So what I wanted to do in the book is take us back to the 1860s, really in the middle of the Civil War, and tell stories as to the best I could in the voice or with the voices of enslaved people or formerly enslaved people, and not through just the, the voices of white people, which is what many of the records um, offer us. And um, what those stories uh, provide is both a vision of what Black people expected freedom to look like what they wanted, what they demanded as they were being emancipated um, slowly and methodically as the Northern troops moved through the South, but also how white military officials from the North 
understood through those conversations with enslaved or formerly enslaved people that something more than emancipation was what was owed. And so the book tells two very detailed stories of sites in the Sea Islands of South Carolina and um, outside Vicksburg, Mississippi, where pretty amazing um, uh, examples of real robust freedom were put in place um, in the form of reparations in the, with land and with the materials to farm that land for the freed people. And, and attendant to that was also a military order that no white person could set foot on that land. And the idea there was that um, uh, black people needed to heal themselves in community. Uh, that community with white people was not what they needed, and it was certainly not what black people were wanting. They, they felt, um, our relationships with you have never been good. Um, just give us the space, give us the land, and go away. And let us heal ourselves, build community, and figure out freedom on our own. And that's what happened in these two places. So the, the book is designed in a way to rebut the story you often hear, the comment you often hear today, that reparations is too radical of an idea and that it's a modern idea, but it's not. Um, it was something that was not just thought about and talked about with that actual word, reparations, but actually implemented. Um, and I can tell you more details about how those went, and the book does that too. But that's, that was the basic idea, was to lift up the possibility of a different idea of freedom. Yeah, I think you do a remarkable job of these two pretty utopian communities that black people designed for themselves coming out of slavery. And early on, you make the point, and that's what I think is really quite unique about the book, but early on, you make the point, which I think is largely misunderstood today, that there's not a binary freedom and slavery, but rather there's a process. And that process is one of the most painful things to read in your book, um, how what, what it meant to suddenly uh, be let go, but not be free and not be a citizen and not be uh, a full human being in the eyes of the society. But then to go forward and build these two utopian communities was extraordinary. Yeah, tell us a little more about that. Well, you know, part of what I start out with in the book is the, the I think, very hard question of whether emancipation bears any necessary relationship to freedom. Meaning, if you emancipate a people, if you legally abolish the institution of slavery, are those people free? And these examples that I tell in the book um, answer that question. And I think American history answers that question, which is no. We can end the institution of slavery, but much more is required in order to make a people free. And so in the, in the book, I talk a lot about the difference between being freed and being free. And what was remarkable about this particular time was the recognition that if you just freed people, you just emancipated them into a condition of abject poverty in a society that was still in every way structured around white supremacy and anti-blackness, you would render that group of people, those freed people, into a status of permanent second-class kind of peasantry. And that is what we've done in the United States. And what these two examples, these counterexamples in the Sea Islands and in Vicksburg show us is that were we to have given people material resources and independence from white people, 
legal, social, political independence from white people, we would have seen a very different kind of freedom than what we brought about in this country where we merely emancipated people, but into a condition of new forms of enslavement or servitude that we're still living with today. So I I often turn back to um, the, the sociologist Orlando Patterson, who often described slavery as a form of social death. And if that's true, what kind of social life was inaugurated, was brought forth by the abolition of slavery. And and that's what the book tries to tell, is that story of a different kind of social life and robust healing than what we actually ended up getting in the longer run. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because the nuance on all sides, everybody struggling with what is the difference between freedom and freed men or you know freed people. And even this notion early on, there was no sense in the northern armies, for example, that the formerly enslaved people were anything but contraband. You use the word contraband, and that's the word they used, right? So they were still property. They were contraband that was seized by the conquering army. Well, that's right, because the, the political leaders in Washington and New York and Philadelphia and Boston weren't quite with the project yet of full recognizing full black humanity and citizenship. And so this idea of the war being fought to end the institution of slavery, of course, was an evolving one. But the robust idea of freeing black people into a, a, a civil status equal to white people was something that was just too much, a horizon that was too far for even some very avid abolitionists. We, you know, we should get rid of the institution of slavery, but to say that black people were fully um, human in the ways that white people were, not everybody was ready for that, including Abraham Lincoln. So he had his own journey um, to understand what the war was about, what slavery was about, why it was evil, and what lay on the other side of slavery for black people and white people and, and for our society more generally. Lincoln seemed to be evolving, but if you read his first inaugural address, it's absolutely horrifying, and and nobody reads it. They all read the second in high school, and that's because it could have been written by Frederick Douglass, but the first inaugural address is just a genuflection in front of the slave owners. Well, that's right. You know, he knew he had a very fragile um, coalition that, that was holding him in office, but his, uh, during that period, his thought was that if we end the institution of slavery, we will repatriate black people back to Africa. Um, there is no way we could all live together in the United States. And when that seemed too expensive or impractical, um, he said, well, then let's put people on reservations out west. And west was, you know, Missouri, um, Kansas. Um, at, at that point, that was understood as the west. And then incrementally, he came to the view that we had to leave black people where they were. Um, but we will never know what that fully would have looked like since he was assassinated right at the end of the war. And a horrible, horrible southern uh, vice president took over. But, you know, the staying with this notion of um, of what could have happened. I mean, your your description of uh, of the two kind of utopian communities really point toward democracy. And I'm curious. I'd I'd like you to say a few more uh, words about those two communities, and then I'd like you to go forward and say what are the implications of that for reparations today for for the conversation that we're suddenly having, which frankly I never thought we'd ever 
ever imagine a conversation on CBS and NBC about reparations, but here we are. And I think it's a very exciting time, but I think your book offers some, some insights into what democracy might look like. Well, it's about what democracy might look like, but it's really about what freedom would look like. And um, I, th- I think at that point, and I think still today, um, f- full freedom is, is, a, is a racially inflected category. It is something white people, and not all white people, but only white people, can, en- can enjoy. And that is one of the legacies of slavery that we are still struggling with in this country, unfortunately. So as the, as the northern troops moved into the Sea Islands, you know, Hilton Head, uh, Port Royal, that area... In 1861, um, they um, they seized that territory. The white plantation owners, the white enslavers, fled to the mainland and left the plantations, the crops, and the enslaved people behind. And what the military, northern military, immediately recognized is that this was extremely fertile land. There was a kind of cotton that was grown in the Sea Islands because of the amazing soil and climate there that was uh, the highest priced cotton that you, could, that you could get on the market, and most of it was sold to Europe. Lincoln was desperate for money to, to pay for the war, and so the northern officials really wanted to keep the cotton production going in the Sea Islands with, with free labor, with paid labor, not enslaved labor. And so the idea was that they would keep the black people there working, um, but with benevolent white stewardship, not, you know, evil enslaving stewardship. And so what they did is they, they put out a call to abolitionist missionaries, white abolitionist missionaries in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia to come down and help with this project because the military folks had a war to fight. So um, men and women um, from Boston, New York, and Philadelphia did come down, the women to teach the kids um, how to read and write, and the men to run the plantations. And, you know, if you think about it in retrospect, it's a joke. I mean, they had no idea how to run a plantation. Who knew how to run the plantations were the black people who were there. Um, so there was a, a little bit of a, um, you know, patronizing uh, white supremacist ethos, even to the best of these experiments in the beginning, is the idea that black people couldn't govern themselves. They always needed white stewardship and, and, um, and discipline. So nevertheless, the plantations did continue, and the black people were were very resistant to continuing to farm cotton. What they wanted was to farm crops they could eat, not crops that would be sold to someone else's benefit, to Europe mm. and elsewhere. And so they, they really engaged in a kind of civil disobedience and said, we're just not going to do that. We're not going to keep... Uh, this this kind of um, plantation lifestyle for a different a different group of, of white people than the ones who were here before. And so there was a bit of a process and a conversation that went on between the military from the north that were there, the missionaries from the north that were there, and the black people who lived there. And little by little, the white people began to see the wisdom of what the black people were demanding, which is land. This is our land. Our blood is in this soil. Our people are buried here. We know nowhere else. We've lived here for generations. You people are new. You don't know anything about this place. It is sacred to us. So, you know, go ahead and have your war, but leave us this land. Mm. And these are islands, you know, disconnected from the mainland. People spoke their own language. Um, And what they wanted was autonomy from white people, not a kind of freed status administered by white people. 
Right. And um, some of the white military got the message. And so there was a program of explicitly termed reparations that took place where land was seized from the former white landowners and then reallocated to the black people who lived there in interesting and complicated um, family formations. Um, as you, I'm sure, uh, and your listeners are very well aware, I, uh, the families of enslaved people um, were a, just a tragic experience where your kids would be sold, your, your spouse would be sold, your mother would be sold. Um, and so they were reconfiguring complicated families during this time and living collectively on the land and, um, and seeing it as their new homeland where they would build free lives. And, the, um, and this, this project was put into place. They got title and deed to the land. They have original documents that I have pictures of in the book where um, black people signed their names with an X, um, having gone out and drawn little maps of the plots they wanted to lay claim to. Mm. Um, and I just, I can't imagine what that must have been like for formerly enslaved people to have a government official recognize they're signing their names on a document um, as a, with a claim for land that would be theirs. And they were promised that this land would be theirs. The other little footnote that's worth noting is at this point, there were many black women who were heads of households um, and they were making land claims and receiving titles for property in their own names at a time when white women could not own property. Mm. Right, where these were during the, um, the laws of coverture uh, and other what we would consider today backward and sexist laws where women didn't have white women did not have an independent legal status from their husband. But black women were able to own property in this time in these these sort of special free zones of um, the Sea Islands and Vicksburg. So this experiment went on for quite a while where land was both auctioned at below market rates so that black people could buy it. Some white speculators from the North also bought land, and increasingly um, we saw more and more of that happening where black people were being outbid by some of these missionaries who came down and said that they were there for the benefit of the black people, but in the end they were really ended up being there for their own benefit. Um, and then just fast forwarding, as this, as this experiment goes on really successfully in many respects, uh, the war ends, Lincoln is assassinated, um, Andrew Johnson becomes the president of the United States. And one of the first things he does is grant amnesty to the former Confederates and restore all of their land except in slaves. And that's the language of the, of the oath they had to sign, that they would have their land, all their property restored except in slaves. Wow. And um, so all of this land to which people had title, you know, the government issued title was violently stolen from, back from, um, from the black people of the Sea Islands and returned to the white people. And then an order was issued out of Washington that those black people had to enter into year-long labor contracts working on those plantations for the people who had formerly enslaved them. So that's, in the end, what it meant to be freed, but not free. Yeah. was to be landless, was to be legally tied through contract to the people who had enslaved you before um, and to be, in many cases, never paid for the work that you did. Mm. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking to read 
the, um, the recounts of what it was like for the folks who um, uh, had their land stolen for them. And I would, just, I would just add one last piece here, which is that for those white people who did not return, they were paid reparations by right. the government for, for the land that had been confiscated for them. And those who did return were paid reparations for the time in which the land had been confiscated before it was returned. So white people were made whole and black people never were. And these particular white people were not only slave owners, they were traitors. They had led a war against their own country and now they're being paid reparations. No, you would think there would be some legal and economic consequences to rebellion against your government, <laughs> armed rebellion against your government. Um, but it turns out there wasn't. And that's because um, of the kind of president that we had right after the Civil War. Well, and I think it's because of white supremacy, which is a long and complicated and vicious serpent, and it reemerges different ways, different times. But boy, did it reassert itself after the Civil War. And then even with the, the potential gains of Reconstruction, the reassertion of white supremacy was just staggering. But I think this reparations discussion is so interesting because, A, because it's on the agenda now, but B, because it really was something that was being talked about right then. And I was starting to say, I just finished reading Barracoon. I don't know if you've read it, the Zora Neale Hurston. Wow. And one of the compelling and staggering in some ways, but, you know, it takes you a minute to get into it because she uses his dialect throughout and takes you a couple of pages to catch on to what, how to read it. But once you do, he's the most extraordinary narrator. And, but one of the, pieces that I'm remembering listening to you talk is he and a group of fellow workers confront their former master and they say, look, we want to get a fresh start. You should pay us for the last several years of work. And he looks at them indignant and says, pay you. I've been, my property's been stolen. I've paid, I treated you well. You go off and do your own thing. But I mean, they were saying we want reparations for our labor. And he was very clear that he was the victim. And that, that, that dialogue continues to this day as well. You know, who's suffering here? It's crazy. Yeah. But, 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 yeah. but maybe a, another word about Davis Bend as a, as a second example that you use um, so brilliantly. Well, thank you. So out just outside of Vicksburg, there was um, a, a bundle of plantations um, nested uh, into a, a really um, deep bend in the Mississippi River. And those plantations were owned by Jefferson and Joseph Davis. Joseph was the elder brother of, of Jeff Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy. And when uh, Ulysses S. Grant took Vicksburg, Vicksburg was surrendered to him on July 4th, 1863, mm. um, a day that uh, is celebrated, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but a day that is celebrated as a day of mourning in Vicksburg to this day. Um, uh, when Grant took Vicksburg, the white uh, slave owners fled, um, and the uh, formerly enslaved people who were at Davis Bend on these two plantations were also granted a level of reparations, thousands of acres of reparations uh, of land was allocated to them, um, and a similar order was issued that no white person could set foot in that space without permission from the military. And the idea was that they too would have an autonomous, self-governing um, community 
where they would move forward independent of white people uh, and build new lives there. And it was particularly auspicious that this was Jefferson Davis's plantation and that was lost on no one, that that was an important thing to do. Um, and uh, what we saw there, um, just as we saw in the Sea Islands, is that a kind of black leadership evolved that had already been developed um, while people were enslaved. It was not something new that, um, that emerged uh, upon emancipation. But there were several communities in Mississippi, Mound Bayou being one of them, that were settled shortly after the end of the Civil War that were autonomous black communities um, that, were, that were created by some of the formerly enslaved people from Davis Bend, mm. um, Benjamin Montgomery being one of them. Um, so the, the Davis Bend experiment, if you will, in black autonomous freedom uh, was also put to a very early end with um, the assassination of Lincoln. But these two parallel uh, contexts where reparations were specifically given in the form of land, um, and then that land was stolen back from them later, um, are both inspiring and heartbreaking. Uh, and, the, and the book goes into a lot of detail about what that looks like. Yeah, and as a, as a legal scholar, as a social activist, somebody who's looked deeply and participated deeply in these movements, I'm curious how you look around today at the taking down of statues, at the defunding police discussion, at the um, Black Lives Matter being painted on the streets of Washington and New York, and reparations suddenly being in the conversation. And you think of the hundreds years struggle, centuries old struggle for black freedom. And you think about the centuries old discussion about reparations. How do you name this political moment? It's transformative. I think because we're in the midst of it, it's hard to know what we're transforming to. Of course. Um, I like to think that we're at the very beginning of whatever kind of shift in um, the telling of our national story um, and our idea of justice and belonging uh, might mean. Um, but it's, it's so encouraging to see, uh, electrifying really, to see people taking to the streets, white people and people of color, um, coming together around a kind of consensus that uh, the, the, the forms of white supremacy that have been normalized since before the founding of this country can stand no more. Um, and I, I think it's often, you know, some people will dismiss the importance of the toppling of these um, uh, statues. And to some degree, I, I, I do think we need to retain them somewhere, perhaps in a museum, because um, we don't want to forget that history. Um, but there's no other country in the world that reveres its um, evil history the way the United States done, has done. Um, uh, and that's part of that legacy of forgiving and forgetting that was the oath that Andrew Johnson um, uh, allowed the former Confederates to sign. You know, one, one thing I would note is there was a public reading of the Declaration of Independence in New York City on July 9th. Mm. of 1776, so shortly after it was signed. And New Yorkers immediately ran out and toppled a big statue of George III. Love it. Um, and they melted it down and used it for bullets to shoot the British during the Revolutionary <laughs> War. Love it. So there's a long and, a long and patriotic history of toppling the, the, um, the statues of, uh, of, of anti-democratic, racist, 
um, despots in this country. And so we're just continuing that tradition today. I think it's important. I mean, it's symbolic, but it's also important because as I've often thought, truth and reconciliation are sequential. You must tell the truth. And we see lies across the country with our public monuments and uh, the people who committed genocide against the indigenous people, people who conquered Mexico and, you know, imperialists of all types, and most egregiously, slave owners and, and traders. And I think it's, it's important to knock them down, but it's important to remember that symbols are not substance. Let's keep rolling. And I'm, I agree with you, you cannot predict the future, but this is one of the most exciting moments I've ever lived through. And I want to keep it going. And, and you've lived through some exciting, <laughs> exciting periods and been part of some very I, exciting I, periods. I have, but this is the most exciting of all. And I, I intend to be there as a student and a follower, but it's an exciting time. And yeah. uh, I think your so, book adds some real substance to the conversation. And I, I hope people get it and read it. It's called Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition by Catherine Frankie. What were you going to say, Catherine? Well, I, I would agree with you, Bill, that um, uh, symbolism alone is not enough. And I don't even think um, just telling the truth is enough, although it is essential. But um, redistribution of power and resources is also essential. Absolutely. And that's why the reparations movement um, has so many components to it. Some of it is, is truth-telling, to be sure. Some of it is relearning our history, which this book aims to do. But at the end of the book, I make a very concrete recommendation. And that is that we address the fact that we are in the midst of the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth that the world has ever seen. So the people who are my parents' generation are passing away and passing to their children at the lowest estate tax rate that we have ever seen, trillions of dollars. And so much of that family wealth was acquired through owning of real estate, through right. just getting a small plot of land, getting a house, sitting on it, letting it accrue or letting it increase in value and then selling it and buying a bigger house. And it's that, uh, that intergenerational accumulation of wealth through real estate that black people never got in on. Right. So what I urge us to do is to increase the estate tax. You know, we don't have to tax every penny of that family wealth, but we certainly could tax a lot more of it and put a significant amount of that into a trust for reparations. And with that trust, that, and I do think that the, the black community should decide essentially what, to be, what should be done with that trust. But one of the things I would recommend is the funding of community land trusts, mm. is the funding of black communities that are collectively owned by those communities where they have their own schools, their own independent energy production. I, I look at um, Jackson, Mississippi, where they're, they're doing a lot of this, and it's just Operation Jackson is very interesting in right. what they're doing with community land trusts. Um, so the idea is not just to enrich individual black people, although I'm for that too, but to empower over the long haul the black community and to do that in a way that is black-driven, black-led, um, uh, and not something that comes out of a government program from Washington, um, other than recouping these funds, which I think are ill-gotten Ill gains that are part of this intergenerational wealth transfer. Um, and the idea of doing it with land trusts both mirrors what these utopian communities were in the Sea Islands and in Vicksburg, 
um, but also recognizes the value of real estate um, and, a, and a home and a place right. for all people, but particularly for black people who've never really had that in the U.S. I think that's an outstanding way to think about it. I, I also think that, uh, as Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates have said in other contexts, working out the details of reparations is not the hard part. The hard part is the political will to say, this is justice. And I think that's what you do such a fabulous job with in your book, that justice, freedom looks a certain way. And we can work out the details once we agree on that. And, and that really is a large part of the struggle. Well, thank you. It's, um, it felt like work I had to do as a white person. I should say we're on, the, we're on a podcast, so you can't see me. So um, uh, reparations and the fight against racism in the society has so often been something that we've relegated to the black community and saying the white people community as not having any responsibility for. But this is our history too. Um, and we have to face it as well as white people and be willing to cede some power and resources um, to address that history and the, and the failure of rendering true freedom to black people in this country. And the interesting thing is that I often remember James Baldwin saying, when black people are freed, white people will be free. And you say free for what? Free from occupying the precarious position of privilege that is not just morally corruptible, but is tenuous and ridiculous. And, you know, rather than think of ourselves as allies, we might link arms and think of ourselves as comrades because the revolution we need will liberate us all in the end. Well, Catherine Frankie, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you as it always is. And I look forward to your continued good work and our continued ability to collaborate. Thank you, Bill. I've, uh, you're one of my heroes, and so uh, it's a great honor to be on, um, on the podcast. I think it's wonderful that you're doing this, and I really appreciate your lifting up um, repair and having this conversation around reparations. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. We will. Take care. Bye-bye. Before we say farewell this time, I have a homework assignment. We've gotten some really great responses in the past few weeks to the homework, as well as to the free rights. Several people refusing to do the homework and defying us to see what the sanctions might be. And of course, there are no sanctions. One of my favorite responses, though, was from Bob in Chicago, responding to the assignment asking you to describe an educated person without reference to test scores, grades, or institutional affiliations. Bob writes, I was up all night and I'm troubled about it still. I'll keep working on it, but I've decided to audit the seminar rather than to take it for credit. I'm worried about my grades. That cracked me up. All right, here's this week's homework. Do a little research on reparations. Think big, think small. Stretch to the Bible or the Quran, move backward and forward, reach through Europe and Asia, and Africa and Latin America, and find any examples you can of restorative justice, any attempt to make amends for a wrong inflicted and endured in the name of simple fairness. Send it along to underthetreepod at gmail.com if you like, and we'll read some of these on the air as we go along. 
Don't forget to rate and review Under the Tree on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get noticed on all of the algorithms and the podcast apps. Thank you for listening and tell a friend about the show. Besos y abrazos and major thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and audacious mentors in this enterprise. And to my workmate in arms, Malik Alim, engineer, hunter and gatherer, technical fixer, scout, primary caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morella. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thank you for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.